Hi everybody, we're picking up in media race. That means in the middle of things with then again with Ken and Glenn. We've been talking for about what three weeks now since our last podcast. Haven't stopped. So we're picking up with our theme, which was myths of the revolution, and we're gonna segue into some uh, kind of symbolic uh, mythology. But Glenn, I think there was something you wanted to discuss right off the top, continuing from last time. Last time we talked about some of the, the military aspects of things, yeah. and we had, I think we had just mentioned Yorktown. Yes, Washington. Beats Cornwallis, Cornwallis surrenders, and the war is over. When was, let me look at my calendar, when was uh, Yorktown? That was in October of 1781, yep. and the Treaty of Paris wasn't signed until mid-1783. So yes, though, there, were, there were other military actions that exactly. took place in North America at that time. None right. of them were, was that large scale, but, but the British had been holed up along the coast. Right. They were still at New York. They were still in Savannah, actually. Right. But they couldn't go anywhere. So for the last year of the war, there were small battles, uh, in, especially in the south. I don't think there were any of any size in the north. Right. But, but there were still... Of whaleboat raids, and, but, but not much. Yes, and, and, but like I always I tell my students, I tell our visitors here at the History Center, we have 2020 hindsight. You have to put yourself in the mind frame of the people who lived in the past, if you want right. to understand it. Washington, the Continental Congress, they didn't know that was the last battle. They knew they had one big, right. big, but they still had to be prepared. And, and a lot of the mood of the country was, yay, we have one, we don't have to worry about it anymore, and there is nothing more difficult for a leader or a group of leaders to try to convince people who think they've won that the war's not over right. yet. So right. Washington is really having to keep a hand on the army and keep those enlistments up and things like that. And also, we beat the British at the Battle of Yorktown and all these other battles. It wasn't American arms in the field that defeated Britain in the end. Right. It led to the quagmire that Britain and its government couldn't get out of and was becoming unpopular at home, but there were, who, who was it that was at Yorktown? <laughs> the French, yeah, right? The exactly. French had come in, and it wasn't just Yorktown. The French had opened up about two other fronts in Europe and in the precious Caribbean, and Britain had to disperse its forces. And basically, Britain went totally bankrupt, right? Fighting this war, and it was that the government going broke that forced them to give up. Right. King George, I think, would have kept going. I was on record as wanting to keep going. Yes, and, and his ministers, who were in the uh, in the government and Parliament, who had the the majority in Parliament would have but that party falls out of power the re the new government comes in and it's saying no we're not going to vote funds for the war you want to stop them from fighting don't give money to the military and, and it worked the government will to fight wasn't there but the popular support for money being spent on something perceived as a lost cause is what ended it huh what does that sound like in america's past in the 1960s in vietnam oh vietnam yes <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. So yeah, I mean that, that's a. I think that's an apt comparison that I know we've made. Yeah, well, many, many, times. many times. But but Yorktown also has a lot of other myths associated. Well, with yeah, it. And, I'm, and I'm glad that we talked about Yorktown <coughs> because you know that's a nice segue into myths that that start being created after the the American War for Independence and and after the Constitutional Period and the Federal Period. Visually, visual arts, I, what is called iconography, icons, things that symbolize. The, the whole and and, the, and that you know the famous painting at Yorktown, the surrender at Yorktown uh, by John Trumbull, you know is, is one of those things that at the time it's created, it is intended to be here's an allegorical look at how 
mighty we were and how we won because of these particular virtues. And, and, and the paintings are couched in those terms and composed in those terms. But you get a few generations removed or 100 years removed or 200 years removed, now people think, oh, well, they painted it that way because that's how it happened. Because we're used to photographs that are of things happening. And it's not the same. And Trumbull himself, the guy that did Yorktown, I mean, he's, he, he's responsible for, for Yorktown and the Declaration of Independence signing paintings mm -hmm. that, that people think, they look at it and figure that's how it happened. Well, that and hangs in the Capitol. Hangs the, in the Capitol. The, the exactly. Declaration of Independence painting hangs, hangs in, in the, the Capitol. Exactly. So, so, so people are exposed to these things. And, you know, most people don't have the, uh, the, the, the background to, to know the, the idea behind why it was created. And they, and they do think of it as, well, if it's hanging up there and it's titled this, this must be how it happened. And there's that great scene, I know it's one of, one of your and mine favorites uh, on HBO, the John Adams miniseries. Uh, there's that great scene where Paul Giamatti, who is the definitive he's John perfect. Adams, ladies and he's gentlemen, so perfect. you know, he's, he's Trumbull, the Trumbull character is showing him the painting and he just has that scowl on his face. It's, I, I cannot speak to the artistic merits of the painting, but it is very bad history. <laughs> <laughs> and he stamps his cane. And it is bad history because as he points out, they have the character point out, that isn't the way the signing of the Declaration of Independence happened. All the delegates weren't all there waiting to step up and take their turn to sign the document. It took place over the course of several weeks. You know, there was never a quorum of people there to all sign it at the same time. And, you know, afterwards, after the wording of it was improved on July 4th, right. remember the resolution for independence was two days earlier. That's our real day of independence. But after the resolution approving the wording, it's sent out to be printed is sent out to be engrossed and made broadsides of. And, and when it comes back, that's when they start signing it. Yeah. So, you know, so that's a myth right off the top. And then, and then the well-ordered ranks and the pristine uniforms that are in the, the, the center at Yorktown. Right. I mean, that's just... I'm, I'm sure Washington and his immediate staff had uniforms that nice, yeah, but, 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 and, and probably some of the French guys, but that was... Right. That was it. You're talking about guys that have been on campaign. They just marched several hundred miles to get there. Yeah, yeah, and have just been through a siege. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many of you out there have been through an 18th century siege. <laughs> or, or There's a lot of shovels and mud. <laughs> a lot of shovels, a lot of mud, a lot of things blowing up, and and a lot of dying of disease. So it, it's that picture that's painted there, while inspiring and romantic, is also allegorical and not meant to be a documentary record. And another one of my favorites in that vein is, you know, the, the painting uh, from 1851, uh, uh, Washington crossing the Delaware, uh, Lutzi, the German artist Lutzi. I mean, there is Talk. so much wrong well, about that and, photo. But, there's and, some things right about it, but there, <coughs> like, like we were just talking about, you, you notice the sword, you're like, ah, that's actually one of the swords he carried. Yeah. Hey, what a great sword. Except that it's in, you know, the wrong size boat. And, and there's daylight, and, and this crossing happened after midnight. And he's and, standing up in a boat. And he's standing up in a boat that only has 20 men. And, and, and these boats that they actually crossed in were these uh, uh, Durham freight boats that were, that were built to carry tons of, of you know, iron ore or coal. They're, they're, they're four, barges. They're bar yeah, they're basically, they're, they're barges with a, with a slightly rounded bow and stern and a keel. They're, they're beasts to, to try to negotiate a river with. So he not, certainly would not have been standing up. There certainly wouldn't have been daylight. You'd have been hunkered down, and the, and the guys would have been pulling across and being, you know, pretty big chunks of ice smashing into you. Uh, you'd have really all been sitting out, huddling for warmth as much as you could, because you knew when you got to the other side of the river, 
It ain't going to be fun. There were no there were no docks for everyone to step on. That's everyone right, who got right. it, they the waded thing. into the water to get on the boats. Right. They got in the boats. Went across. Went across in the ice. Got back out. Had to get back in the water. Their feet are soaked. Right. And now it's time to march in sub-freezing temperatures right. for miles right. before dawn, so you can sneak up and kill the Germans on Christmas. <laughs> exactly. So once again, while that image. I mean, it is a stirring image. It is. Guy standing in boat. I mean, it, it's the picture of power and leadership unless you actually stop considering what they're doing. And then it's, what a foolhardy fellow yeah. crossing in broad daylight, standing up in a boat. Right. But, but the thing is, that, that image, when, we, when you said those words, I guarantee everyone listening, it, both of them. That painting came to their um, mind. Yep. Yeah, that came to oh, mind. Both, 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 both of them. The two people listening. <laughs> we, uh, but us later. Us later. But they, they know that, and it's been in postcards, it's been in magazines, it's been in movies, it's been in commercials. It's been in a Mad Magazine parody. It's Washington cross-dressing the Delaware, which is hilarious. Google that. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but, but been, everyone yeah. knows that, and, and it's become a part of the national consciousness. Right. Um, like these other paintings. Like these other too. things. And, and, that doesn't, and, and the historical accuracy doesn't necessarily need to negate the importance, Precisely. but, but we people need to be, need to be aware right, of it. Right, that's the thing. As a matter of fact, the allegorical nature and the construction of the painting as a symbol is just as important a lesson to study, and the history of why it was done that way is just as important to study while, as you said, realizing it was not meant to be documentary. Right. It just wasn't. It was meant to inspire, not meant teach. To inspire. Exactly, exactly. Now, you can use that thing that was meant to inspire as an aid in other teaching you're doing, clearly, you know, sort of like we're doing now. <laughs> but, uh, or, 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 hey, any teachers listening, put together a, a lesson plan of comparing these different paintings, why they were done and when they were done, and what was the artist's understanding of what he was doing or she was doing, uh, you know, in the case of some of the, the writers. So, no, so those, are, those are paintings, works of art that we've primarily been talking about. But there are other objects, artifacts, if you will. I guess they're not accessioned. This is museum talk. So they're just <sighs> objects and they exist in the real world, like our little replica of the Liberty Bell. Of the Liberty Bell, yes. Well, and that's, that's the interesting thing. So uh, the Cross in the Delaware made what year? 1851. 1851. The lead up to the Civil War, right. people trying to be patriotic, America, all right. these great things. Same thing with Liberty Bell. Yes, that that bell hung in Independence Hall, and they tried to ring it, and it didn't go well. But it didn't get the nomenclature of Liberty Bell, and it didn't become this great icon until about the same time as the Crossing the Delaware painting, because right. it becomes a symbol of the abolitionist movement. Right. Let freedom ring throughout the land. Freedom for slaves. Right, right. So, this is this. It, you know, it's the. So we it's think. Not, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. We we we, hearken, <laughs> we try to harken this back to the revolution, but that's right. when it was created. When when the myth of this thing and the power of this object was created, it was about abolitionists trying to to say that slavery should be abolished from the United States right. in and the so, 1840s and right, 50s. Right. And so the name Liberty Bell, quite liberty, liberty. Quite, Quite liberally. liberally. Literally. <laughs> There's so it's many L words like, in history. It's not, it's not like it was wrong in this in the during the American War for Independence, and that's why it's called the Liberty Bell. No, it's I think as a matter of fact, I think specifically there was a speech that Was it Lloyd? Uh, it was it was one of the I mean, female abolitions. It was it was one of the female abolitions. But anyway, at one of her speeches is when it was wrong and referred to as and let this Liberty Bell because Quite overtly, we're calling it liberty now. It hasn't been called that before, and we're not right. c calling it that because of its role in the revolution. Because it, 
didn't have one. It was simply a bell in right. Philadelphia. It was present at the creation, right, right. as it were, but... but but it was, would have been one among many that was wrong. Uh, so yeah, so it, it's called Liberty Bell, as you say, because in the 1850s, we want it to be a symbol of abolition. Now, you're consciously using this bell as that symbol because it did hang in the State House during the American War for Independence. We call that Independence Hall nowadays, folks. Independence Hall nowadays. So, so yes, because this bell did hang in Independence Hall, you are saying, now let it ring and be christened the Liberty Bell. Uh, so there is a conscious linkage but it's not called that because it was called that during the American Revolution. Right. And it's also, you know, it's it, they rang it so hard to proclaim liberty that it cracked. <laughs> Turns out what that means is this bell was made in America, and American bells <laughs> are not very good at this time <laughs> because we don't have the industrial capacity and skilled labor know-how to make something that doesn't break. Right. The, 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 the metallurgy behind bell making is pretty... Sophisticated. It's pretty sophisticated. And, and English bell makers were very, very good. American uh, bell makers? That's a good, sometimes their bells crack. <laughs> so once again, we're talking about Yorktown, and you know we've talked about actual you know art of, you know object, and we've talked about paintings, but there's a song associated with Yorktown that also goes into myth making, and that's and then when the British marched, the American band played, and the world turned upside down, and they sang the song, and the world turned upside down, except that there is no. And the world turned upside down. Well, there was. Well, 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 in that form, in the form, there, there was. I was going to say it wasn't are, really made until about the eighteen hundred, about right, eighteen hundred right. or there's, so. There's a tune, and there are lyrics that aren't necessarily associated with each other at all, and they're from two different periods. And then at some point, they they merged into American myth making as ah, th this these lyrics were with this tune, and it was played. Yet when you read the original accounts of the people that mm -hmm. were there at the surrender. They talk about you know the dead march being played or somber somber marches being played, but it was th there was no celebratory ha ha in your face we won you lost it was and you know anything with Washington in charge of it it was very strict mm -hmm. military protocol by the book because again they didn't know this was exactly. the turning point that they they knew they'd won big but right. There's still massive armies that right. they have to overcome, and the French are about to have to go back home because the hurricane season, and they've got to get the ships out of there that actually allowed them, the right. Americans to have the victory. Right. So this is, it's far from over right. from so, their so perspective. Right, so you're certainly not going to taunt the enemy that you may face again. Plus, that's also, I'm not saying there wasn't taunting of enemies during, during the, the War for Independence, but that was certainly not Washington style. It was not. And he was the commander-in-chief on the scene, on the ground, at that surrender ceremony. He certainly wouldn't have countenanced anyone doing anything other than strictly proper military civility at that point. Uh, and then there's also the documentary record of people that are there saying, none of them mention anything about the world turned upside down as a tune right. or lyrics being played or sung. So, you know, there's another one that, that, that's hard to stamp out. Uh, and But what I was going to say um, previously is that these these icons that have entered the popular consciousness as our shared popular memory of the American Revolution, and I was on the soapbox a little bit last episode, I'm going to get back on it. <laughs> Think of the Revolutionary War icons. Washington crosses the Delaware, Lexington and Concord, the Liberty Bell, the Congress in Philadelphia, the last battle at, quote, last battle at Yorktown. Where are the Southern icons right. from the Southern theater? That's why 
when we think about the revolution, we always think about Washington and the things that happened right. from Yorktown up. Right. And because they're, quite frankly, maybe, maybe the North is just better at making those icons. I don't know. But we don't have those icons that stick with us for mm-hmm. the war in the South. I mean, we know about it, but can you name a popular icon from the Southern War? I can, yes. <laughs> but, they're, but they're all local. Yes. They're regional icons. Yes. But you know what? I just had this thought as you were saying this. When is a lot of this myth-making solidifying or happening in the middle of the 19th century? What happens in 1860? The nation tries to tear itself apart. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps as some of these icons are coalescing, you, because of this national fracture, a lot of the southern ones get pushed to the side because possibly, of, and, and I'm just this is just a thought that has just yeah. occurred to me. Yeah, that would certainly, uh, certainly make sense as to why some maybe some of the southern icons aren't as prominently mentioned because when this myth making was happening, there was already a division. You know, there was a vision, but they were. That's the thing. It was a the Civil War was an ideological struggle. Right. Ideologically, both sides are trying to claim ownership Except of those other kinds. Oh, right. When you look at the seal That's of the Confederacy, who's on true. it? Yeah. George Washington. George Washington, yeah. They're both hearkening back and trying to claim ownership and thus justification right. for those icons, like Washington crossing the Delaware. Right. Independence from tyranny. Yeah. You know, yeah. all those things. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Robert E. Lee, looking back to his ancestor, Richard Henry Lee. Who was in the Southern Theater, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and who signed the Declaration of Independence. Who who introduced the the resolution for independence. Right. Uh, uh, And parodied Lord North, you know, that the the Parliament, you know, uh, has and ought to have the right to govern the colonies. He says these these colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent. (laughs) You know, Richard Henry Lee was pretty pretty acid-tongued and acerbic. But but yeah, so so you, you do have... Everyone trying to claim the mantle of the the American War for Independence icons exactly to, to make them new icons right for new for causes their, for their yes for their particular cause right. or are they old causes maybe they were the original causes after all right. were the right the inheritors of said cause right and you know it's interesting when you get past so you get past the Civil War what is the next thing the centennial of the American War for Independence. And once again, you see a frenzy of you know the, the, the Washington worship and, and a mm-hmm. fresh wave of the iconography, and and you're and you and they are, and you are focusing on the things that were like Yorktown, which both North and South can claim as ah we were both there together. Washington, we can all claim together. The Declaration, we can all claim together because we were all right. there. That spirit it. of reconciliation, spirit of reconciliation, which feeds into a whole another you know sort of mythology and thing. So there there are a lot of reasons why. Why the why icons are important, how they can be used, how they can be manipulated, and how they can be misunderstood. But they're all they're powerful symbols. There's there's something that they're, they're, that are meant to grab you on a visceral level. That's why these paintings do that. Yeah, and they're and they're visual. That's they're why just, statues do that. They they, are, they they grab you. They in, and you don't necessarily think. You just feel. You know, like the speeches of Patrick Henry. <laughs> 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 Did we talk about him last time? Well, I don't think we did. Okay, that's what we were. You know, I had. I mean, as we all know, as 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 the two listeners of this podcast know, I love Patrick Henry, and and I and I kid with love. Well, and and you know, that's one of the myths that I had that on the list. I don't think we'll we'll be able to get to it today, but all the mythology and misunderstanding around 
Benedict Arnold, who you have mm -hmm. portrayed at several venues, including Colonial Williamsburg, which is why I wasn't going to let you go on too long, because that could be the next six episodes. Well, but, I mean, I haven't, even talk, I haven't even talked about him yet, have I? Did no. Did I talk about him last time? I don't think what, so. What kind of time we got now, Libba? I mean, I'll start holding forth right now. I can give a taste. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Benedict Arnold, greatest American hero. No way, that's... But, Until... But, but a great American hero, and in his eyes, he never stopped being one because... And this is just the taste. He did a phenomenal service militarily up through his wounding at the Battle of Saratoga. Washington, he was Washington's favorite field general because Washington knew that he got stuff done. He, he just did. He was right. a man of action who got stuff done, incredibly keen improviser. He grows dissatisfied with the way Congress is dictating the wars to be fought and the way the petty state governments are fighting against Congress and against its officers in the continental officers in the field such as him. So he becomes disillusioned with Congress and even though he and Washington have many similarities in their relations with Congress, the difference is, and the thing that turns Arnold is, he lets it become personal. But even in the guise of letting it become personal, he does see, like the Carlisle Commission that promises all the things the First Continental Congress asked for, he sees as, well, if they're giving us what I said I was fighting for at the beginning, me going to them isn't a, being a traitor to American liberties and rights, it's going back to my true original allegiance because they're now granting what we said we were fighting for. Now, we can argue the details about that a lot, and we will next time, but there's just a little taste of maybe what we can do next time with our good friend, the greatest American hero and the greatest American villain, Benedict Arnold. Well, he's a by name. <laughs> yes. So that's all from, uh, from us from here for now. We'll see you. Actually, we'll never see you, but you'll hear us. Well, you'll see us because you'll come to the History Center. There you go. All right. Bye. Bye. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 